It's time to end Obamacare now. For the past eight years, we have been suffering under President Obama's ridiculous policies, the worst of which... Obamacare. And you know why it's bad. It raised premiums, it decreased patient choice, and it made people even more dependent on government. But when President-elect Trump takes office on January 20th, we can finally repeal Obamacare. But there are liberals in D.C. who are conspiring to save it. And the only way we can stop them is if we get grassroots activists like you to stand up to them and pledge to help President-elect Trump repeal Obamacare on day one. So stand with President-elect Trump and go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. Get involved. Help repeal Obamacare. If you don't act now, we won't be able to make a difference. If you want lower premiums, better health care, we need to repeal Obamacare on day one. And that's why you need to go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. It's time to take advantage of this historic opportunity and see how freedom works. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food, order today, 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for hopping on board the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We've got a big announcement to make coming up a little bit later on in this hour, so make sure you are tuned in for that. Until then, we'd love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Our producer, Aaron, has returned from his Harry Potter Hodge. I hope... You had a good time down there, Aaron? It was very lovely, yes. Uh, Universal uh, Studios and Islands of Adventure. A lot of fun. Harry Potter World is awesome. I hope you enjoyed it because no one's ever going to do that ever again. No one's ever taking a vacation right after we just get back from vacation ever again. He caught me at a weak moment. My defenses were down. That'll never happen again. I'm going to have to remember what type of moment that was so I can take advantage of it again. A moment which will never again occur. That kind of moment. But it's good to have you back. The moment that shall not be named. That's perhaps? exactly right. Yes, where I where, where uh, I, I see what you did there. The, the, where, where I set Boston back at least a good century. 
uh, with that level of leniency. All right, that's a violation of the boss code. I was kind of surprised that you let me do that, but I, was, I wasn't going to say... It's uh, not your fault. All you did was ask. Yeah. I can't fault you for asking. Do you have, like, Puss in Boots eyes or something that you you put on, you know? Kitty cat eyes, big kitty cat eyes that just hit Steve in his weak spot or something like that? Is yeah, it? via email somehow. <laughs> that must have happened. And it shall never happen again. You got one past the old man. Few get to say that in this life. <laughs> Bring him the heater, Ricky. That's right. So make sure you recognize that. I hope you enjoyed it down there. Will do. So today, we'll get to some weekend news and views here in a moment. Uh, but of course, today, uh, some of you, I'm sure, the day off, and not just because of the ice storm in the Midwest, but uh, uh, today is the national observance of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And I, I thought I'd start the show off tonight by uh, descri- discussing how he was actually instrumental in shaping my own worldview uh, in activism. And uh, after I became a Christian, I spent uh, the next couple of years soaking every everything about my faith I could find, uh, soaking it up like a sponge. I really immersed myself in reading, watching, listening to everything I possibly could, trying to gauge, uh, you know, what was real, what was not, uh, you know, because you've got a lot of people out there, particularly on what is loosely described as Christian television, preaching a lot of things that may or may not be Christianity. But I got to the point where I'm like, you know, all right, we've, we've done a lot of this on a philosophical and theological level. How do I apply this stuff? What, what would be a contemporary application of the stuff that I'm studying? And, and there were slim pickings for that in terms of a contemporary audience for a couple of reasons. We're an increasingly secular culture. That's one. Secondly, we are living in a fluffier church age in this, in this day and age. Now, I'm not sure if the secularization of America led to the fluffier churching or the fluffier churching led to the secularization. I, I don't know. But because of that, there, there's not a lot out there about, well, here's what this actually means in your day and age, so go and do likewise. Thankfully, one of the works that I stumbled upon was something I'd actually first studied in AP English when I was in high school, so several years ago now. But I wasn't really aware of its true meaning until the, the spiritual pilot light came on, if you will. And when I read it again, I'm like, I missed the real meaning of this many years ago when I studied this in high school. What I'm referring to is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, this was originally written mainly to white clergy at the time who were urging MLK to basically slow down, don't be so radical, work within the system, in the courts, let the precedent of Brown versus Board of Education play itself out. Uh, there's no need to cause, um, you know, all of these protests and the violence. And they're, they're, of course, lecturing him from the cheap seats while he is sitting in a jail cell for leading nonviolent protest against racial discrimination. Sort of reminding me of one of my favorite lines ever from American Christianity, the late D.L. Moody responding to his critics who said that he was too much of a tempest in a teapot. He was too much of a bull in a china shop. And he once famously responded, I like my way of doing something better than your way of not doing anything. And that, in a way, is what Martin Luther King Jr. says here in Letter from a Birmingham Jail, just with a lot of panache and eloquence, and some of the most solid biblical exegesis you'll ever read from a contemporary work. What he does in this letter, and it's not long, you can go online, find the whole text, I'd advise you read it. But what he does in the span of a few pages is is puts together one of the most powerful compilations of biblical and church history hermeneutics on social activism that's ever been written. One passage in particular 
has done as much to inform my view of the law, of the judiciary, of the role of the courts, how we are to respond in an era where unelected judges think they get to issue immoral edicts. This passage has done as much to inform the kind of talk show host and activist I am than anything else I've read that what that didn't directly come from the scriptures themselves. These are the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Quote, You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? Because he's in jail for breaking the quote-unquote law of Jim Crow, of segregation. The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. Martin Luther King Jr. writes, I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, he writes, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two, he asks? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law, Martin Luther King Jr. writes, is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law, unquote. That right there has done as much to guide what I have done in my career as anything else not written in the scriptures themselves that I have read. And you can probably see threads of what I just shared with you. you your memories probably, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, has been jarred because you can hear many of those threads described and discussed on this show on a regular basis. So on this day that we're going to have partisans on both sides now cherry pick a complex man's legacy for their own political agenda. And I'm not an expert on Martin Luther King Jr. I've read a lot from him and about him. If I had to guess, and it would be an educated guess, that's the best it would be. If he were alive today, chances are he would offend people on both sides of the political duopoly as he did in the day and age in which he lived. He probably would like more government solutions for society's problems than many of us would like. And he probably would be dramatically against redefining morality, as some others would like. But nonetheless, I would like to just simply honor his words as he wrote them at the time. Because I think these words, gentlemen, are timeless, and they are just as relevant for us today, Todd, as they were back then. Well, if you just read the words, and you didn't know it was the letter from a Birmingham jail, and you didn't know it was from... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., at first you would have a bunch of progressives on board, you know, just law, no just law at all. I mean, especially under Trump, you're speaking my language. Uh, and then you'd get into uh, starting to talk about, well, how do we know what's just? Wait, wait that's separate. What about separation of church and state? Theocracy, theocracy, theocracy. I mean, th there's a reason this is so powerful to you, Steve as a young man, but there's not a person alive who wouldn't read this, who this, this, this thing does not cut to the quick of what it means to live in a free society. There is nobody who claims to genuinely uphold the foundations of this country that does not have to recognize what he's talking about. Where, where does truth come from? 
How do you know it? Mm-hmm. When it is okay to just push aside notions of the truth as simply false and lies and when must you follow through on them even if you don't aren't necessarily comfortable or agree with them because their core is legitimate uh this is the alpha and the omega really of how we should be raising our children on so many levels i think uh, what i would say as we recognize the life of this man he was a man who understood that the fight that he was thrust into and that he thrust himself into He, of all people, understood that it was not right versus left. It was not people group versus people group. It uh, it was right versus wrong. He understood that he was not uh, he was not following or disobeying man's law because it was unjust. He was following God's law because it was just. He he recognized that at the end of the day, he was not the hero. His people group was not the hero. God was the hero, and I think we need to remember that as we uh, go through this day and recognize his life. When we come back, we'll take a look back at uh, some of the other big headlines from over the weekend next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Politics is a contact sport. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. So let's get caught up on some of the headlines from over the weekend, and uh, I think it's fitting to start here, given how we just opened the show. But um, Congressman John Lewis, once a civil rights hero, and when you... When you, when you did the things he did in his youth, I don't think you can ever lose that legacy. But it's also not the only, uh, the only thing his legacy is. He has become, in the last couple of decades especially, essentially a partisan Democrat Party hack. He has called every Republican standard bearer of consequence I know of, name a name, he's called them all racists, every last one of them. And it didn't matter if it was John McCain or Donald Trump. It had nothing to do with persona, invective, or incendiary language. The minute they became the face of the other party, he just labeled them Jim Crow and racist. And so uh, he decided to go down this road again with Donald Trump over the weekend, Aaron. Trump, of course, responds in kind. Mm -hmm. Zany hijinks ensue, and we're off. Here's a reset. In an interview with uh, NBC over the weekend, uh, uh, Georgia Representative John Lewis said this of Donald Trump. You know, I believe in forgiveness. I believe in trying to work with people, um, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. Of course, by now you should know that uh, Trump's not just going to let that stuff fly. He said on Twitter on Saturday, uh, Congressman John Lewis should spend more time on fixing and helping his district, which is in horrible shape and falling apart, not to mention crime-infested, rather than falsely complaining about the election results. All talk, 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 no action or results. Sad. That tweet was posted at 7.50 a.m. This was a few hours after uh, Lewis, the uh, civil rights icon, as you mentioned, Steve, who was badly beaten at the Selma Bridge in 1965 during a voting rights march, said he would also skip Trump's inauguration this week as an act of uh, protest. In his interview, Lewis who's been in Congress for 30 years, said uh, that uh, this will be the first time he's not attended a presidential inauguration since he first came to Congress. And that's not even true. That, that's not even true. 
He boycotted Bush's inauguration in mm-hmm. 2001 along with Maxine Waters. So that's not true. Listen here, guys. I'm a biblical worldview guy. So, so here's what a biblical worldview says, not what Steve Day says. This is what it says. When someone like John Lewis is standing up to oppression, we march with him. We stand with him. That's what it says. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Hates anything that demeans the dig- that, that demeans the dignity of the imago day made in His image. Whether that is racism, sexism, when we marginalize people based on their state of being, that goes against the law of love of this universe. We are to oppose that. That same law of love that runs this universe also says that bearing false witness against your neighbor is wrong. In fact, it's a commandment not to bear false witness. So when you run around calling everybody who disagrees with you a racist, you are bearing false witness. And he just was dishonest in what he just claimed. He didn't even go to the Bush inauguration. He said he was an illegitimate president too, elected by the Supreme Court and didn't show up. So I'm no Trump humper, but Todd, I'm calling total horse pucky on this pearl clutching that somehow John Lewis gets to gaslight every Republican of the last quarter century a racist. And if you dare respond in kind, well, then I just can't believe that. He's he's beyond criticism. Now, I could have picked a lot better criticisms than what Trump picked. I don't even know what the crime rate in Lewis's district is. But this is, again, where Trump's going to have to learn at some point. That where he when he wins is when he doesn't make it about himself. And he lets other people do it. Where he could have clobbered him is he could have said, I would think someone who marched for voting rights would have more respect for the people that went out there in November and, and, and saw fit to give me 307 electoral college votes that I could not have won myself. That he would have respected people's voting rights. Rather than saying they made a lawful decision and calling it illegitimate, those were the arguments that racist Democrats used against the likes of Bull Connor Democrats used against the likes of John Lewis that he marched against a half century ago. That's the argument that he should have made. So if you want to say to me that Trump could have handled this with more aplomb, I'm game. You even want to say to me that this might not be the weekend for Trump to even acknowledge John Lewis, given the observance of MLK. I'm okay with that as well. But enough with the pearl clutching with this guy. He has long exhausted his legacy. It's no one else made the decision for, but John Lewis to turn himself into a Democrat Party shill, pit bull, flamethrower. He did that to himself. And and furthermore, if if we get the best case scenario for a Trump presidency as we view it on this show, and I don't mean being myopic that he's the second coming of William F. Buckley, but we, we, we get what is reasonable to expect as a best case scenario. You can take what I'm about to say to the bank. Donald Trump's legacy for black Americans will be infinitely better than John Lewis has been the last 20 years in terms of stopping the Holocaust of black babies, babies that look like John Lewis, in terms of their economic viability in inner cities. And I don't even think this is an arguable point. I hope you're right. I think it is an arguable point, but I hope you're right. Just because I I don't think we know what Trump's going to do really about any of that stuff. But if your argument is it couldn't be any worse, if your argument is it couldn't be any worse, that's the argument Trump made in the campaign, which is, you might as well vote for me. How could things get any worse? Uh, then, if that's your argument, then you're right. I, 
I don't know what worse would be other than the current literacy rate, infanticide rate, out of wedlock birth rate. I, I'm I'm kind of with you on that. And you mentioned that this is something that Trump is going to have to learn, that if uh, he just lets people make it about himself instead of trying to do that himself, he'll be a lot better off. Uh, this is, I mean, we should know by now, but th- this is what we're going to have to get used to. I think it was a terrible decision to just engage with this uh, man, uh, especially this weekend. I mean, this is um, this is, I, I think, one of those things where you just have to make him uh, just make a determination. This is, this, I'm just not going to go there right You're now. Right. But he yeah. doesn't have that type of discipline. He, he and doesn't. He's shown Aaron, that but for there's a reason. There's a reason beyond his own narcissism and megalomania, though. The reality is, there's a lot of people in America tired of the gaslighting from the likes of John Lewis and his pearl-clutching sanctimonious phonies in the press. And they they freaking cheer and scream full throat when he takes the when he takes the vat of gasoline, adds another match and flings the monkey poo right back into their lap because they see him as doing what they've wanted to do watching this go on in their living rooms for the last 25 30 years. So yes, there is an there is there is an aspect of his narcissism and megalomania that is inherent to who Trump's persona is that we cannot avoid. But there's plenty of people out there that recognize those things and stood up and cheered what he did given the timing because they're just tired of taking it. Because most Republicans in the, in the past, if not almost all of them, would have said what you just said. This is not the weekend to do this. But then they would have never told you when the weekend was. That's true. And they just would have sat there and taken it. That is so true. So and, and there's a lot of people out there saying, and you know what? I'll take this guy's bad timing over 97% of Republicans non-timing any day of the week. They don't have any timing. It's just always the time to say, thank you, sir, may I have another. I'm not defending it. I'm not advocating It's just the way it is. I'm just reporting it. So I think we need to recognize that. There's plenty. There's, listen, I, I hate the white nationalist stuff, the Pepe the Frog stuff. We sat here on this show. I did it on national television, in the national media, and I pushed back against that stuff for a year. I can't freaking stand it. But you know what I also can't stand? Calling everybody a racist just because they disagree with you. You're listening to Steve Dace. He has not yet begun to offend. This is Steve Dace. Back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. More weekend news and views. And, uh, of course, we can't seemingly have a news cycle without Trump and Russia. The bromance continues. Yeah, I feel like I need to have a special introduction for this segment because I think this is something we are going to be talking about a lot on weekend news and views. U.S. President-elect... Uh, Donald Trump will propose offering to end sanctions imposed on Russia over its annexation of Crimea in return for a nuclear arms reduction deal with Moscow. That's according to um, his own words that he told the Times of London on Monday. Criticizing previous U.S. foreign policy in an interview published, he uh, described the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 as possibly the gravest error in the history of the United States and akin to throwing rocks into a beehive. 
But Trump, who will be inaugurated this Friday, raised the prospect of the first big nuclear arms control agreement with Moscow since the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty signed by President Obama in 2010. He said, quote, they have sanctions on Russia. Let's see if we can make some good deals with Russia. For one thing, I think nuclear weapons should be way down and reduced very substantially, but that's part of it. But Russia is hurting very badly right now because of sanctions. But I think something can happen that a lot of people are going to uh, benefit. Then uh, this uh, weekend, there was also a report uh, that his first foreign policy, Donald Trump's first foreign policy trip as president, is expected to be a visit with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, the Sunday Times, a U.K. newspaper, said uh, Trump and his team told British officials that their first foreign trip would be in a summit in Iceland with Putin within weeks of the inauguration. Incoming White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer called the report 100 percent false on Twitter. So I prematurely gave you congrats for calling that winners. And you, my guess is you're still going to be right about that. Give it that. time to marinate. Yes. Yeah, we've still got about 350-some-odd days to go here. Okay, So I, I think you're, you're still going to be right about this by the time we shut the door on 2017, but you're not quite right about this yet. Listen, the idea of lifting the sanctions on Russia for committing an, uh, an illegal act of provocation against another sovereign country in exchange for nuclear... Uh, disarmament. What is this? 1986. Our military presence blows theirs away. The American people literally get nothing out of a Russia nuclear reduction. Nothing. You remember what nothing. that did back in 2010? The nuclear disarmament. Yeah, but, all but, it did. All it did was just decrease our presence in well, uh, Eastern Europe. That, that's, th that's all it did. This is not. This is not the 80s. They're not on equal footing with us. But well, I know your kids are homeschooled, but my kids yesterday were just hiding under their desks, worried about whether know, the bomb was coming. Yeah, they're, right? they're not on an equal footing with us, guys. <laughs> okay. We would wipe them out before they got anything off the ground. Okay? That's why Putin's doing these things. Because of what I'm because what I'm saying is true. Why do you think he needs Crimea? Because we would wipe them up before they got anything off the ground. They're not a competitor. This isn't the 80s. So we don't trade sanctions for nuclear disarmament? What the hell is that? It's being a servile puppy dog. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. The only nuclear disarmament we care about is stop helping Iran's nuclear armament. That might be something we might be interested in. I mean, I, I, if, 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 if Trump wants to say we'll lift the sanctions over what they're doing with Crimea on the, on the grounds that, they are out of the, that are, they're out of Iran, out of the Middle East altogether, would you listen to that deal? I'd listen to that deal. I would. would you? I would listen to that. But, that's, but this is a terrible deal. I, and and you, the fact you're leading with this, I'm sorry, guys. This is, this is either you're woefully in a, in a, ill-informed or you are communicating Russian talking points because that's the deal they want to make. We give up. Well, listen, we agree to be even more inferior to you militarily in, exchanging for, in exchange for you guys helping our economy. Das Vindanya, comrade. Who the hell's not taking that deal? Doesn't this remind you exactly of multiple debates when he started musing on foreign policy and you always had the same answers? I have no idea what he said. I don't know what that. he was saying. I didn't understand <laughs> it. I didn't get it. Don't, it was just... It, it was just a deal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it was We're going to make a deal, blah, 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 blah. So, so, for, so listen, I'm just telling you. If, you. if you're supporting this administration, you want it to work. This is the deal Russia would offer us. We agree to be even more inferior to you militarily if you agree to help us economically. Who in their right mind would agree to that? Because you want to know how they could be on an equal playing footing with us militarily? If they were on an equal playing field with us economically. This is how we defeated the Soviet Union in the first place, guys. 
They wanted an arms race. We gave them one. And they didn't have a market-based economy to sustain themselves when we amped up the defense spending. Their command economy imploded. They couldn't keep up. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to level the playing field economically, which will eventually level the playing field militarily. That's a terrible deal. That's, that's what they would propose to us. That's awful. I, I expect the master negotiator to do better than that. We have all the leverage here. We're choking that we're choking them. We're, they're not doing anything to us. So we're the ones that ought to be getting concessions here, not them. You're listening to Steve Dace. Putting the fun back in fundamentalist, the Steve Day Show. I still can't get over what we just talked. I mean, I just, I, I sat here through the entire commercial break. I still can't get over it. I mean, we're back to, you weren't here on Friday when we talked about this. I, we are back to Todd discussing. Why, where, why is, I... I am praying, and I urge everybody listening to this show to, that, that believes the same things we do, to pray that Trump is as committed to judicial, good judicial nominees as he is to Vladimir Putin. I, I don't get this. And, and you start running into what's the motivations for it, and we had this conversation on Friday, there's, there's no good answer to this. One is woefully uninformed fanboy stuff, and I mean, you're just, you're bromancing a guy. So one is a dude code violation from your total alleged alpha male new president. And the other is something I don't think we even want to contemplate. I don't really see much in between. It's one of the two. But, but this is the guy who, who stands up there on the debate stage on national television and just discredits, even with dishonesty, but just with no shame whatsoever, says whatever it takes to say to demean his opponents. Everywhere. Just blatantly throws out, I think, the outgoing CIA chief is who was responsible for leaking that fake news dossier last week. Has no compulsion whatsoever. You want to talk about gaslighting, which is this week's term du jour, apparently? You want to talk about gaslighting? This guy will gaslight on demand. It's a state of being. And there is nobody without an, oh, with an R or D after their name that is immune. He will gaslight staff. Gaslight everything. But one thing. He'll gaslight China. The one nation that actually is our equal militarily and economically. China. China. He will gaslight China. China gets gaslight. Gaslit. On command. No hesitation. But this guy in Russia, this 20-year dictator who before that was the head of their KGB, the whole tone changes. All the talking points change. I I don't even know what to make of it. He negotiate this this is John Boehner negotiating against himself with Barack Obama stuff. I'm not I, 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 you're laughing. I'm not saying that. It's funny. I wasn't intending to make a joke. I'm laughing on the end, inside to mask the crying. It is bizarre. I'm just telling you folks if you're listening to this tonight. It's bizarre. Something's not right about this. I don't know what it is. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't even want to contemplate where my imagination could roam. I don't even want to go to the places Trump would go if it was anybody else and the shoe was on the other foot. 
But at the very least, there's something bizarre about this. There is something unsettling about this. And this is no way to deal with a, with a megalomaniac, narcissist, authoritarian like Putin. Is to deal with him from a position of weakness. Trump is essentially doing to Putin what guys like Mike Huckabee and Chris Christie and and all the and, and so many other people, uh, the the incestuous harem of of consultants and and spokespeople, the Kaylee McElhaney's or whatever the hell their names were that we saw last year. He is doing for Putin the fluffer duty they did for him. And and by the way, when Trump won, what did he? How did he reward all those people? Reward who? Exactly, gone. They're all gone. They're all gone. So how do you think Putin will respond to such overt weakness from the very beginning? It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me why you say to China, whose basis for their economy is literally a basis for our own, like we we are in a you know it's it, it's the joke I made about the last Olympics. Why well, I don't watch anymore? There's no rivalries. And a friend of mine said, "Why don't you root against China?" I'm like, "How do you root against your own landlord? How do you root against the people that keep the lights on at night? You can't root against them." I'm only half kidding. We're in a symbiotic relationship with them. We need each other on some level. So he's perfectly fine going in there and just making omelets, breaking eggs all over the place, cracking them over the Chinese heads. And by the way, I'm I'm fine with that. You you okay with that, Erzin? I'm okay with it. I got no issues. There. I got no issue with that. Yeah. I'm not complaining about cracking about cracking some Chinese Shycom skulls. I'm not complaining about that. My question is, why the why the different tone where Russia is concerned that no one else gets? Not your domestic political rivals. Not even your domestic political friends get this tone. Not even countries who could actually, Russia cannot threaten us. That's why they're, Russia's working for leverage. That's why they're working with Iran. They're looking for leverage points to matter again in the world, guys. They can't do it on their own. China can. So explain to me why we go in there laying ordinance down on the Shycoms when our economies are literally layered together. And Russia, we offer the deal of, tell you what, you guys agree to be even more militarily inferior to us and we'll help you out. Can you tell me, can, can someone tell me what the rationale is for that that doesn't take you to a place you don't want to go? I think we saw this, though, a little bit domestically during the election, didn't we? Donald Trump would uh, gaslight, since that's the term du jour this week, as you pointed out, gaslight anybody and everybody except for who? The establishment. Mm-hmm. This happened a couple times. Why was that? Did we, did we ever find an answer to why that was or a theory to why that was? Maybe it was because they had something on them. Maybe because they were in a position of strength. I don't know what... I agree that it's weird. I agree that it's uh, kind of creepy and the, um, you know, the theories are out there. It's unsettling. The unsettling. It's unsettling. But Donald Trump is, is this unsettling. Akin- are we missing an opportunity to apply Occam's razor here? Isn't it... Uh, he, he knows the president of China. He's done uh, uh, the type of... He, he's done... He's been high-end business deals with uh, China, the Chinese for decades now. I just think there's a fascination about this strong man, this mystery man, the guy that he wants to measure up. You know, there's so few that I can f- feel like are my equal on any level. I just want to stare this man in the eye. I think it's probably a little more than that, doesn't it? We, everything we've learned from Donald Trump, doesn't that make sense? 
that he just what, wants to get you're, the measure of the man. What you're describing is one of the two options I gave, and it's the most, it's the better of the two options. Yeah. Well, Neither yeah. one of them are good options, but it is the better of the two options. But we're used to this option. Uh, it's it's unsettling. It's also a terrible negotiation standpoint. You go in up front knowing that that sort of bromance fascination begins. You don't expect somebody like Vladimir Putin to try and play on that. Because then when you get Trump into a negotiation, if he walks out of there with nothing, Vladimir Putin doesn't look bad. Who looks bad? Trump. And you put a guy in a compulsion where he thinks he has to make a deal to save face. That's why you don't want to look so weak going in. You're listening to Steve Dace. Radio's version of the Red Pill. You take the Red Pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So I mentioned at the top tonight uh, that we have a big announcement to make, and now is the time to make that announcement on Thursday. Our show is going to be simulcast live from 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, all three hours, by C-SPAN. They are flying out here from uh, D.C., and they want to get the mood of the country on the eve of Donald Trump's inauguration the next morning. And so they decided to use our show uh, as a means by which to do that on Thursday night. We're pretty moody. (laughs) (laughs) If you're looking for moods, you came to the right place. So... Needless to say, this opens up a whole new potential audience for our show. We want to take advantage of it as well because um, we may get people that uh, have never heard of us or would not listen to a show such as ours. And we're going we're gonna to open up the phone lines during a good portion of the program on Thursday and try and get various perspectives on both sides. And we're going to ask this question. We'll have guests as well and some of the normal stuff you hear us do. But it will be our, our special pre-inauguration edition. The entire three hours will be devoted on Thursday night to the upcoming inauguration of a new president, what it means, what it doesn't mean. And one of the questions we're going to be asking listeners and viewers on C-SPAN around the country, are you less or more optimistic about the new president than you were the morning after the election based on how things have transpired during the transition. So we're going to we're going to be asking many as many Americans as we can reach gentlemen on Thursday night. We're going to be asking them that question. So that's that's some pretty big news for our show. We're very excited about it, Aaron. Yeah, that's uh, that's correct and it is going to be interesting to see uh, especially as you m- mentioned a whole different audience than uh, what usually listens to our show. So it is going to be uh, interesting to get everybody else's uh, a, a different audience's perspective on these things that we've been um, beating around and talking about for the last uh, couple of months and I'm I'm really looking really looking forward to it. What do you think, Todd? My wife told me to get a haircut. That was my first directive after hearing that we were going to be on C-SPAN. She's a little concerned about your, how your grooming is going to play in Peoria there? She has a few demands on me, but uh, going live nationally, yeah. I just, the gauntlet what, was thrown down. Whatever we do, I want us all to promise right now that uh, whenever we're not talking, <laughs> we'll just stare at the camera with our mouths open. I think that's uh, that's the first rule of uh, broadcast television. Yeah, we should mention that since it's C-SPAN, there won't be any commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. So they they will have literally all three hours, including when we're not on the air is going to be captured by C-SPAN's cameras. So make sure we are on our uh, 
Well, I don't want you to be on your best for behavior. That'll be boring. Everybody gets to see our witty off-camera banter now. Yes, it's but, excellent. But, but, but do make sure you're on not as not as bad behavior. Let's put it that way, because there will be. It's all going to be captured forever on C-SPAN. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I have to put my shirt on. Uh, yes, <laughs> and 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 keep your pants on while you're at it, Aaron. So that's Thursday night, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern on C-SPAN. Looking forward to that, as well as Hour 2, which is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. We are back with our two of the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That is D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And in case you missed uh, the big news last hour, C-SPAN will be here on Thursday night, uh, the night before Trump's inauguration. And they will be live simulcasting our show from 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern live on C-SPAN uh, as a part of their look ahead and preview to uh, Trump's inauguration and the beginning of a new era. So uh, we look forward to that. We also look forward to the conversation we're going to have this hour with our good friend Bob Vanderplotz, who's back with us after a couple of week hiatus. How are you, Bob? I'm doing really well. Congratulations, C-SPAN coming in Thursday night to see what you think and what the rest of the country that listens to you uh, is thinking about this peaceful transition of power. So and where all, do we go from here? All nine of us are, are really looking forward <laughs> to C-SPAN hearing our collective thoughts. I mean, that's that's really cool. They called us out of it's the blue very cool. last week. So I think we will uh, open up uh, the phone lines a good portion of the time uh, and let uh, C-SPAN viewers, because this may be an opportunity to hear from the other side in a way that you typically wouldn't on a, on a show like this, and, and kind of gauge the mood of the country as we head into the beginning of a new era. Uh, are people more optimistic or less optimistic on the eve of the Trump era than they were, um, you know, the day after the election, based on what they've seen from the transition thus far? I think it's great kudos to you and the respect that uh, national media has for your voice. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we just had a high-level consultant into the family leader last week, and they said, you know, America's looking for voices. They're looking for voices that's going to shoot straight. And that's what C-SPAN is saying. We respect you as a voice. Uh, that shoot straight. Uh, I've heard you give give kudos uh, to President-elect Trump for some of the cabinet picks and some of the other decisions. And, of course, I've heard you hold him accountable in regards to uh, that's not the direction you want to head. So I think uh, C-SPAN recognizes that. I think the country recognizes that. And I love to see the trajectory that this show is on. I appreciate that. And I, I will tell you, I am concerned. I mean, I'm going to do it this way, period, because I, I got into this to fear God, tell the truth, make money, that whole thing. And But notice make money's third on that list, and it's third with a bullet. Um, I am concerned, though, that there may not be a market. I'm not going to lie to people. I, I am concerned there may not, when this is all said and done, that there may not be a market for simply calling balls and strikes according to a 
uh, a transcendent worldview. That that for all the bluster that we hate political parties and everything else, I think right now, and I've been doing, uh, I made the switch from sports to news, news talk radio ten and a half years ago now. Uh, and and when you do it, particularly on the front lines of a presidential election, living in Iowa, that's like dog years. Okay, so it feels like it's been a lot more than ten and a half years. I hear you. Uh, um, uh, this is as blindly partisan, as duopolistic, as binary, as as non critical thinking, as non discerning, as I have ever seen the media on both sides, as well as the consumers in the time I have worked in this industry. It is it is beyond even what we saw in the Bush years, my opinion, uh, with Bush derangement syndrome, where it was almost like the media and the left were trying to do their best to, to make Iraq a failure down the end mm-hmm. of the Bush era. And we saw the Bush team just for whatever reasons beyond incapable of actually defending what they were doing. And we just sat there and circled the drain for those last couple of years. Uh, I, I think it's even worse than that. I, I, I do. And I think it's because, at least in the Bush years, where he takes over and less than a year into his presidency, we have 9-11, this galvanizing moment. And at least there was some sort of rationale for a lot of people on our side, myself included, to say, I don't agree with Medicare Part D. I don't like race to the top. I don't like no child left behind. But the reality is we're in an existential uh, conflict on a, on a global scale that if we don't win, it's going to make these domestic arguments pretty moot when we all have to learn Arabic, Arabic at the butt of a gun, right? Mm-hmm. We don't even have that kind of incentive right now. This is all based on the personas of the people on both sides, and they bring out the absolute worst in each other. We got into this last hour with the whole John Lewis, Donald Trump thing over the weekend. I think I, I think there's a million other ways that Trump could have handled John Lewis better than he did. But then, but then on the other side, this idea that that, that somehow John Lewis has this has this papal dispensation to gaslight his opponents and then claim because of what I did for the civil rights movement 30 years ago, I can't ever be criticized. Bob, this guy's called every major Republican in my lifetime a racist. I know he was once a civil rights hero, but he forsook that le- legacy now I'll, I'll choose to still remember him as that mm-hmm. but but he has he has become a, a, a race baiting caricature for the last several decades in the United States Congress all he does is everybody's a racist with an R whether it's John McCain or Donald Trump and those two guys are a lot different in case you hadn't noticed well let me give you some encouragement first of all we don't want another 9-11 incentive to galvanize the country to unify the country we like to see leadership galvanize and unify but I think the encouragement is this uh, first of all, you'll never be wrong when you do what is right. So I'd say continue to be who you are and the voice of clarity, whether people want to listen to it or not. But two is what I'm starting to sense more and more, at least with our constituency, our constituency is thrilled that Hillary Clinton has not taken the oath of office on Friday. They are thrilled about that. As am I. But now they have some legitimate concerns. They're thrilled about some of Trump's appointments, but they have some legitimate concerns about how Trump is acting out as the next president of the United States. So what the, I, I really believe what they want. And this is what I told Donald Trump in his office in late May when he and I met one-on-one. Listen, when you do things that are right, I'm going to cheer you on. When you do the Jeff Sessions, I'm going to cheer you on. When you do something that's out of bounds, that doesn't make a lot of sense, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And I think that's where the American people are today. I believe Trump has the opportunity to be a great president if he will lead with the characteristics which are not uh, ingrained in him. Humility, going to God in prayer, seeking God's direction, 
turning this country back to God's principles and his precepts and and really listening to some key advisors that he has around him, whether it be Kellyanne Conway or would be some of his cabinet picks of saying this is what the country needs now today. You mentioned you brought a big name consultant here last week for the family leader to kind of give the the lay of the land outside of your own echo chamber of fellow believers with similar viewpoints. What did he say, or she for that matter, without revealing who it is, what did they say to you that wasn't proprietary, but in general about where they see in terms of the interactions they get to have, whether it's focus grouping and and what else they do across the country that plays in to where what the can the country truly define or even agree on what a great president is right now? I guess I'm asking. I think uh, what, what what this person laid out is that this country is divided and we no longer agree on fundamental issues. And so when we talk about a divided country, we are a divided country. And the only hope, in my opinion, is this is going to take leadership to unify. And I'm not just talking about leadership of Donald Trump. I'm talking about the church being the church. I'm thinking about the, the church being willing to speak truth, but to do it in love and to pepper it with grace and to bring people to our side of thinking. But instead of calling people stupid people or just shouting them down because they don't happen to agree with us, let's win an argument based on the issue. Why is this the right direction for our country? Why does this this type of leadership at the end of the day, why does it win? That is actually what will unify. But right now, there is no doubt. We are a divided, divided country. And I happen to believe the hope of the world is in the church. And I think the church needs to be the church. The question we don't have an answer to. Is, is we are a deeply divided country. How many of us are deeply divided? That is the answer we don't have. And, and when I mean deeply divided, I don't mean uh, what kind of role should government take in supplying health care for people. That is an argument that people with good conscience can reasonably disagree on, provided it doesn't include forcing nuns to pay for abortions, right? But, but But reasonable people can disagree on that. I mean on an existential level. What's a bathroom? What's a gender? Yeah. Well, let, let me give you okay. an example, Steve. What is freedom? What's freedom? You, you exactly. Mean, when you look at freedom, and for those of us from a conservative viewpoint, a Christian viewpoint, a people of faith, we say what freedom is is that we need to be able to govern ourselves if we're going to be able to live in a, a free country, if we're going to really live out this republic. So, therefore, in order to be great, as Hillary Clinton hijacked, we must be good. Freedom on the other side is I get to live any way I want to live, and nobody gets to tell me how I get to. There's and furthermore, two, you have to tell me you have to change the way you live to advocate right. the way that I. So want there to. becomes two different viewpoints of freedom. That's the division we're talking about. These are fundamental, foundational type issues. Because what I see a lot of, I mean, what swung this last election was the amount of people that voted for Obama twice who flipped and voted for Trump this time. And why would they do that? I mean, it's not like these two guys politically and on the platforms they ran on had a lot in common. And and so you look at what they do have in common. And what they do have in common is an authoritarian tendency, the notion that they can solve all your problems. And so they tried it with this with, with the progressive Marxist Democrat, and that didn't work. And, and now they'll try it with the nationalistic Republican and see if that works. And that's what has me concerned that maybe we can't even truly define what a great president even is anymore. We'll come back. More with Bob Vanderplatz of The Family Leader here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace.
what a blaze of glory sounds like. The Steve Day Show. Back here with Bob Vanderplatz and the Family Leader, where we talk leadership each Monday night at this time here on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. I want us to get into Obama's legacy as the curtain falls on his presidency. We'll do that here in a few minutes. But since we, 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 I, we've chased down a rabbit trail here that I think is interesting, and I want to I I elaborate a little bit further. So right now, if well, you want— Does it surprise anybody that we think our conversations are Well, I, <laughs> are I think inter- it's interesting, so I hope everybody <laughs> else does. Um, but, you know, we, we went through these confirmation hearings last week. And other than Ben Carson, who, when he was asked about the uh, alphabet uh, rainbow jihad agenda, said in his one lucid moment in his testimony, I'm not giving preferential treatment to any groups. That's not what equality means, but thank you. Uh All right. Everybody else, including people we like, from Mattis to Sessions, went out of their way to, to use the other side's terminology to acknowledge that there is a species of human being other than male or female that God has created. I mean, if, if, it, it really just was their talking points often used in, uh, out of the mouths of people that, you know, our side would advocate and support. And yet, and yet, I, I, get, I, I open up the news, which for me means I went on Twitter this morning because that's my, that's my wire service. I just follow numerous uh, news sources from across the ideological spectrum, and I can get a lot of information quickly. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I open it up this morning, and there's news of some singer that I've never heard of who says she has to cancel the, her appearance at the, Obama, at the Trump inauguration because LGBT groups are, in, are, are furious that she would dare go there. I mean, we've, got, we've got a Republican incoming administration that has done everything other than committing to being LGBT themselves, to bend over backwards for these people, and because they're so invested in the failure of the other side's political party. They won't take yes for an answer. And lest we get on our high horse, let's face it, there were plenty of us that were, that were, that were like this when Obama first took over as well. Then it didn't take long for him to show that he had no interest in working with the other side once he got in there, that this was all going to be, I'm going to impose my progressive agenda by hook or by crook. But we didn't know this in January of 2009. And there were plenty of people on our own side that right away, no matter what Olive Branch he would have offered, were going to reject it and kneecap it because they had a political or media or financial vested interest in opposing him. And now the shoe is on the other foot. I watched Ryan Priebus yesterday claim that no Republicans ever claimed Obama wasn't a legitimate president when he took over. Many of us claimed this. <laughs> Come on. And now we're watching the other side do the exact same thing. And then whatever they, whatever 11 they dial it up to, we will then just justify the next go around when the shoes are on the other foot, right? You see where I'm getting at? There is an industry, Bob, a cottage industry vested in not coming to any semblance of agreement on anything vital in our culture. And I don't know how we overcome that. Well, I don't want to ring the clue phone, especially to Ryan's Priebus, but uh, I think when you have the president-elect when he was businessman Donald Trump questioning the birth certificate of— Exactly. Come on, man. <laughs> of President Obama, basically what you're saying, he's not a legitimate president yes. because he wasn't born here. But that, that aside, I think you're exactly right because I was in Cleveland, Steve, and I saw this party— and and the the nominee and Donald Trump bend over backwards for the LGBT community. They had I forget the guy's name come up to give a a, a major Peter speech. Thiel. P- Peter Thiel they did, and and people cheered him on. He said, "Hey, you got we got to stop fighting this culture war. Your yep. culture war is a fraud." Isn't yep. that what he stood up there? He and did, said? and he said, yeah. "We have to stop worrying about who's using what ba- bathroom." I I remember 
uh, nominee Donald Trump giving his acceptance speech, basically thanking that we didn't want to that we didn't hey, want to kill people. Congrats, who, congrats, you conservatives really don't want to kill people whose morality don't agree with. That's news right. to me. I didn't know that. And that was, that was never the intent. It was just standing up for what we believe is right and what is wrong. And so the LGBT, we we've used their terms and all that, but you're exactly right. What they're saying is that we believe there's a threat. Just like uh, the conservatives in 2009 said, you know, this guy's going to be a threat to everything that we believe. I think you're seeing the left react this way as well. Because there, to me, there's no proof on the LGBT stuff that th- that this administration is going to be a threat to them. I don't see. Tell me what proof until we start seeing judicial nominees in terms of their messaging and their appointments. Tell me where there's proof that this would be that much markedly different than what we, they would have gotten if Hillary Clinton had won. Tell me. I, 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 don't, I don't think it this is. This is your issue. I mean, well, you're on the, your organization's on the front line of these issues, yeah. so you're monitoring closely, yeah. closer than I am. So tell me what's dramatically been different in the way they message themselves from what Hillary Clinton's people would have said if they were going through confirmation hearings in a transition. Probably right the now. big thing that I'd say would be markedly different, and it may be some that they're cons- uh, that they definitely are concerned about, and that is the whole concept of religious liberty. When when Trump says I'm going to repeal the Johnson Amendment or I'm going to have Congress repeal the Johnson Amendment, I'm going to sign it. Okay. They say I'm going to free up churches for that. May be something like no, no, no. It's silence. Even though the Johnson Amendment's a fig yeah. leaf that's busted one church ever in sixty years, sure. but okay. But it's basically going to say. But what it would do is all these churches who are hiding behind the fake disguise yep. of we're going to lose our five hundred one c three, which you and I both know is not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. It will open up not just churches 501c3s, but the family leaders 501c3. A lot of other 501c3s to say, no, we can actually speak the way we want to speak without the threat of losing that tax-exempt status. That may be some. The other one that they obviously were very concerned about is who is he going to put to the Supreme Court? Because he's not just going to have one, but he's going to have two, possibly three those will be appointments. The, those will be the instances where that's how we'll find out. If a Jeff Sessions just goes in there last week and says Roe v. Wade's the law of the land, even though three minutes ago I said it violated the Constitution, just to throw their talking points out there to throw them off, and then once the confirmation's done, they go in there and do what they were always going to do. See, that could be true, too. We just don't know that yet. That's why the question I asked you is, until these people actually take office and start governing, until they actually get a, start appointing justices, the way that they have carried themselves and messaged themselves is really not that much different on these issues than what you would have gotten out of Hillary Clinton. Uh, you're exactly Now, right. that could all be a ruse. And I'm open and, frankly, hoping for the possibility that this is just all – we're going to grant your point in public until until the, the ring of power is yeah. handed to us, and then you're going to learn really quickly there's a new yeah. sheriff in town. And I don't believe it is a ruse. And I do believe the tr- uh, that President-elect Trump and his administration – are definitely going to be very hospitable to the LGBT community. But I also think they are serious about repealing the Johnson Amendment, which might be a bridge too far for the LGBT community. And I do believe they are. They're, they're very serious about appointing conservative constitutional Supreme Court justice, which is definitely going to be a bridge too far for the LGBT community. But this is, again, where the other side is making some of the mistakes that we made. Sure. Jumping the gun and projecting things on their opposition in a way that you almost insulate them from future criticism. The birther thing was the greatest thing that, in my opinion, that ever, that ever happened to Barack Obama. That is, that is absolutely the argument that he wanted to have all along because he could play the race card, everything of that nature. Yeah, they'll always insulate him from any issue based, any any real issue based scrutiny whatsoever. And what his card is, is that they'll do anything to delegitimize me. Yes. And that's,
that's, I think, what uh, the Trump and his administration say. Listen, listen, the, the left is never going to listen to us anyhow. They're just going to do it to delegitimize us. My counsel, though, to Donald Trump would still be is that let's rise to the point of a leader and let's even make the argument to the left about why these are the best ways to move a country forward. Because I, I, to me, shouting people down or tweeting people down, that's just not the leadership we're looking for today. And, and that's, that's also why I ask. Or that I'm not looking for today. We are deeply divided, but how many of us are deeply divided? Hillary exactly. Clinton won less than 15% of the nation's counties. Under Barack Obama, they have lost over almost 1,000 office holders in various uh, you know, stages of government in the last eight years. So, yes, we are very divi- divided. But how much of us are very divided? Is it is it Hollywood and a few coastal states versus everybody else? Are we? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. That's the answer we'll probably get in the next few years. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. No wasted ammo. This is Steve Dace. Back here with Bob Vanderplatz and the family leader who joins us most Monday nights at this time here on the Steve Dace Show. <laughs> Wait a minute. It is, it's the majority of the Monday nights. I just had a few weeks off. That's why I said most. Yes, it is most of them. Uh, let's get to uh, the curtain falling on uh, the Obama era. And, and I think, and I wrote about this over the week in a conservative review, and if you missed that, it's it's up on our Facebook wall. You can go read the whole piece uh, for yourself. We won't rehash the whole thing here this hour. But one of the points that I made in in the piece, where really, there's two points I made in the piece, I want to get your take on. One is that there is a there is a dualistic aspect of Obama's legacy that that makes it hard to just um, assess from a partisan lens. It makes it hard for to just say, well, if you're on the left, he's one of us, so he did great. And it makes it hard for those of us on the right to say he cost, he decimated your party. You're not a national party at the moment. So he failed because you're still talking about a guy whose favorables are still higher than Donald Trump's and he hasn't even taken office yet. Right. So I I think it's more complicated than, again, our partisan duopoly. Uh, and, And I think that one of the ways you have to look at it is I think people wanted him to be successful. I think people liked him. They wanted him to move us into a post-racial America. But if you look at there were 19 issues that Gallup just surveyed the American people on last week, whether they think we made progress or not. And only two of them did they think we made progress. Global warming kind of issues and rainbow jihad. They thought health care was a net zero. Everything else they believed was a negative. In fact, listen to some of these numbers, Bob. These are these are incredible. Okay, when you look at the fact um, those who believe that that that, that we we've done worse on the federal debt is a is a net minus thirty six percent as well as it should be. Uh, the net gap between rich and poor, income inequality in Gallup, it's 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 a negative thirty four percent. Race relations, the very thing that Obama was elected to move us past, it's it's viewed as worse by net, net minus twenty seven percent of the American people. Iraq is worse by net, minus twenty two percent. Terrorism by minus twenty one percent. U.S. position in the world by minus nineteen percent. Immigration by minus eighteen percent. Afghanistan minus 12, taxes minus minus 11, national defense minus 9, education minus 8, trade relations minus 4. 16 of the 19 issues Gallup surveyed showed a negative assessment from the American people from where we were when he took office to the kind of progress they thought that he made over the last eight years. 
And so I think that's reflected in the over 900 office holders Democrats have lost while he's been in office. He has, he has decimated their party. They are not a national party right now. But I go to something Rick Santorum said to me uh, a few years ago, which I think is one of the smartest things I've had a pro- politician say to me in recent years. And he said, Steve, if, if Barack Obama in 2009 could look into the future and see how Obamacare would decimate his party, he would still do it because of the amount of power and control it would give them. And I think that is true. And I think that's where, again, you can't project your own expectations on your opponents. Progressives hate to lose every bit as much as we do. They just define winning and losing differently than we do. We have a tendency to think, hey, I watched Fox News tonight. Republicans won. They got more seats. We're, okay, I can go back to my... They don't work that way. Like, that, like they want to win elections, but they'll just find another means. Academia, pop culture, Hollywood, uh, education. They'll find another means if they're out of power politically to move the fulcrum to the left by hook or by crook because that's how they define victory. And that's why I don't think it's simple just to say, hey, Obama lost, you know, Hillary lost, Obama's people lost 900 some odd seats. That's his legacy. Because what he did for them ideologically is beyond the expectations they could have hoped for eight years ago when he took the oath. And that's why I think, Bob, that I think Trump's going to decide Obama's ultimate legacy about whether or not he's truly serious about uprooting this stuff. Because if he's not, Obama has put the, the country on a course that we will not, that we will not ever turn back from i totally agree and if you recall when uh president obama was candidate obama and he he said he was very willing and open to being a one-term president meaning i i believe this stuff and i'm going to lead here and if the people don't re-elect me they don't re-elect me but but i'm going to what to exactly your point i'm going to move the needle on these issues that i really believe in and what we're saying, Steve, is that we'd like to see conservatives take a lesson out of the playbook of Barack Obama and really believe what you believe to be really real mm-hmm. and now lead that way and lead by uprooting these things, reverse the executive orders, repeal Obamacare. But let's do it in, in, let's do it in the right way. But I think you're right. Trump is going to determine, was Obama successful or is Trump going to be the really transformative president that we need to have today. And sure, they are not a national party, but they do control regions of the country where they're almost impervious to an opposition party. And those regions are very strategically placed because they happen to be some of the most important demographic and pop culture centers in the entire country. So I think I think that we need to consider there's a bigger picture than our own partisan lens when assessing Obama's legacy. We're gonna talk more about Obama's legacy as it relates to Trump here in just a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. The truth, straight, no chaser. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Bob Vanderplatz is here with us as he usually is at this time on a Monday night from the family leader. There's been a lot of talk post-election as we continue discussing Obama's legacy. There's been a lot of talk post-election about Trump being Obama's legacy. And again, I agree with this, but maybe not for the reasons most of the people on our side want to say. And, and, And again, sometimes I don't know when people are saying what they really think 
or what they think they need to say because there is an industry out there for both sides to continue arguing about things that really aren't even worthy of arguing about or making arguments that are easily refuted but because there's an audience that wants to accept that they're true even if they're not, right? So I don't know how much of this people believe and how much of this is a talking point. But this idea that, that, tr- that Obama's legacy is Trump, that, Ob- that Trump couldn't have gotten elected without Obama, I think it is true. But not for the reasons people think, okay? I think it is true because I think Obama's presidency had to set three precedents. Well, or confirm them, meaning they they were already out there, but they had to be confirmed. So I think Obama's rise to power either confirmed or set, Bob, three precedents that without those pre-existing conditions, Trump has no chance to go from a vanity candidate to president of the United States. And they are in order. Number one, confirmation. That nothing is more powerful in this day and age than the cult of personality slash celebrity. Not issues, not not ideology, not integrity, not anything. And and, and Trump became the first Republican to win an an election of consequence that wasn't about issues but personalities. Because I've said my whole career, when elections are about issues, Republicans win. When they're about personalities, Democrats win. That's been true all of our lives until this past year. So, so, so Obama set the precedent that they, anything doesn't, it didn't matter. We got, we caught Jeremiah Wright red handed, mm-hmm. burning America down. Couldn't overcome the, the cult of personality celebrity. The left caught Trump on video, grab him by the, you know what? Didn't matter. Can't overcome the cult of personality slash celebrity. That is the most powerful force in our culture today. That's number one. Your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think there's a couple of outliers to that. I mean, I do agree with you, the cult of personality. But one is Barack Obama was running against John McCain. And John McCain was not, I mean, America wanted a new day. They wanted a new way. John McCain was leading the polls when he was maverick John McCain. When John McCain suspended his campaign to go to D.C. to help out with the TARP bailout, that's when they basically said, we want Barack Obama, we're done with this stuff. Because it was Washington, D.C. all over again. The other outlier to it is uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, I really do believe, I've watched Biden now in some of the closing days, if Biden would have ran and Biden would have been the nominee, I think there's little doubt that Biden would be the president today. But I think Hillary Clinton was so disliked that the cult of personality, even Donald Trump and all the misgivings of, of, of Trump's past and, and current comments, whatever it is, the people are willing to say, I'll take that over going backwards to that. And so I think you're right. Cult of personality is, is dominant, but you have to throw in the factors of a John McCain as well as a Hillary Clinton. The second thing, the second president that either Obama either set or confirmed, and that is, and I, in this case, I think he set it, and that is the power of social media. Now, now Obama used it differently, and, and his rise was during the rise of social media. He used it to create a personal touch. You know, some of the stuff that is now annoying to us eight years ago, people really thought they were getting texts from Barack Obama. They really, thought, they really thought Michelle Obama was re- personally, because we had not seen a lot of these things yet. And the, and, the, and, the, and the way that they use social media really developed a base that was impervious to outside criticism. Trump did the same thing. Now, he did it with more of a sledgehammer than an intimate approach. But his ability to just go online and change whatever today's narrative is with one tweet 
uh, has created a base of help create a base of support for him that it doesn't matter what you catch him doing, what you catch him saying, they simply are going to disregard it anyway because that's their guy. Without question. I, I think that is dead on. I think Barack Obama showed us how to use social media in the rise of his campaign. I think Donald Trump showed us how to use social media in the rise of his campaign. They were two different approaches, but they both utilized it very, very effectively. The reason I kind of laugh, I remember my mom when she was alive back in the earlier campaigns who would give me a call and say, hey, Bob, Mike Huckabee just gave me a call. It was a robocall. Right. But she thought Mike Huckabee just gave her a call. And I think you're right. When I saw B.O. on the Twitter, Barack Obama, you know, that had to be official. I mean, he was communicating to me mm-hmm. if I was one of his supporters. The third precedent that either Obama confirmed or determined, that you don't have to win a majority of the American people to win, uh, but a majority of the American people who are actually planning on voting. That's the difference. And we have been sold this thing from Republican consultancy industry our entire lives that we have to win a majority of the American people. We don't want wedge issues because we don't want to do anything that may threaten to drive out their base. So run as bland and vanilla as you can, right? You see what I'm saying? Sure. In fact, run candidates who will take their wedge issues off the table He blew that entire formula up. He couldn't have been more incendiary. He couldn't have shown less class. He couldn't have shown less dignity. He couldn't have shown less decorum. He violated every unwritten rule of GOP party politics. And it had the, it actually had the propensity to depress their base, their base, except for a couple places. I think he's, I think he might have permanently turned Nevada into a blue state with all the new Latino voters he registered. But if you look at, if you look at, Hillary did what she had to do with minorities in Florida and she still lost that state. So it depressed some of their base turnout and amplified his, just as we saw Obama's most heated rhetoric on wedge issues amplify his turnout. And depress the other sides. I think what it is is people, the barometer there is people are so sick and tired of politics as usual that uh, regardless of what Trump said, it was refreshing that he said it. And frankly, Steve, back in the day of the bland candidacies, they would have said, absolutely do not pick Mike Pence. Do not pick because Mike Pence blew up Rifra on the right and he blew up Rifra on the left. He didn't win on Rifra. And he was, he's too socially conservative. He's actually a Christian first. I mean, he says that. And he picked Mike Pence. Back in the day, that would have been, no, you can't do that. Remember John McCain? You can't pick Mike Huckabee. Mitt Romney, you can't pick. Matter of fact, we have to win without these conser- these social conservatives, people of faith. Instead, Trump saw that as his, his avenue to victory. And I think when you look at his messaging, it is very similar to the messaging you see from the left. Everything's a confrontation. Everything's a crisis. And, the, and, I've, and I've, I've shown this to our audience for years. The reason the left does that is because most Americans are complacent. And so you got to find wedge issues that wake them out of a slumber and motivate them to get involved. And that's the same approach that Trump, that Trump advocates. And Trump knows the mark of a good salesperson is create urgency, that you need it and you need it now. Bob, we'll see you again next week, man. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, ma'am. We'll come back, have some comments on what you just heard here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Most of what we say is illegal in Europe. Get the truth while you still can. Steve Dace. All right, let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Bob Vanderplatz from the Family Leader. 
Aaron, I'm going to start with you. What, what stood out to, to you during uh, the conversation that uh, Bob and I had here during the course of Hour 2 tonight? I'm going to go back to the beginning of that conversation where you expressed your concern that maybe there's not a, a market for truth. Maybe there's not an audience that wants to hear truth. And I've got bad news uh, or just something bad to say. Uh, there's not going to be a market for truth. There's not going to be an audience for truth until Jesus comes back. I mean, that's just the way that we're wired. So this is, should motivate all of us, especially us that have uh, microphones in front of our face, but everybody who has a platform, which is everybody now in the Internet age, that should compel us to make our message as compelling as possible. We have the most compelling. If we're Christians, we have the most compelling story that's ever been written. We have to work hard, though, to engage the culture with that message because just spouting the truth alone People don't want to hear the truth. We've heard this and we've talked about it ad nauseum. There's not going to be a market for truth. There's not going to be an audience for truth until we're, see it, until we're judged when uh, Christ comes back. Then everybody's going to want to hear the truth, whether they like it or not. I was going to start in the same place, but with a different premise. How many of us, on the right or on the left, are now, in fact, in open rebellion? Bob talked a lot about we are a country of division. Well, how divided are we? Are we going to find out in a month, two months now that you know we're pretty much just on autopilot, both sides? I mean, the same leadership is there more or less. I know Harry Reid is gone, but th this doesn't look like a new shakeup other than the White House. Or on both wings, is there genuine rebellion? Is it something closer to the end of uh, to Revenge of the Sith, where the Empire, the machinery? is still moving uh, like it is? Or are we like the movie we just saw, Rogue One, where the rebellion now is officially underway? Which one is it? And I don't know that we know the answer to that. We don't. And we won't until the governing starts. And then we may not even know that in the first year. We, you know, we, it, And it will probably take some sort of external crisis to get that ultimate answer over the course of the next four years. We are deeply divided. But also keep in mind, we're coming out of an election where ideologically Trump may not have been the most uh, forcefully conservative, but certainly in his persona, he was dramatically different than, than either of the Bushes, than John McCain, than Mitt Romney. George H.W. Bush won Pennsylvania once in 1988. No Republican, none of the other guys I just mentioned were ever able to win it, despite the fact that they all, they checked every box of what GOP consultants told us to do, right? None of them could, none of them could win Wisconsin. Nobody, no Republican had won that since, I think, Reagan in 84. Uh, one of them, they, none of them won Iowa. I think, or George Herbert Walker Bush won it in 88. No Republicans won it ever since then. You see where I'm getting at. So, but I mean, none were running against Hillary either. Well, that's but there's there's pluses and net minuses to that. She also had a, a built-in base set up for her by Barack Obama at the exact same time. But but the point I'm making is he won places Republicans don't typically win. So it is clear we are deeply divided. What we don't know though is how many of us are. Are we? Is is Cal Is it California, New York versus the world? That's and I think we'll get the answer to that over the course of the next few years. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. 
America. This is Steve Dace. And we are back with Hour 3 tonight here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, the Today Show on Friday, I think it was, celebrated their 60th anniversary. And our friends over at the Media Research Center have gone back and done a, a rather unique homage, actually, to the Today Show's legacy with their top 10 worst examples of liberal media bias over the course of that time. You're going to hear some nauseating and amazing audio coming up here in the bottom of the hour. So make sure you are tuned in for that. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is that time of night when our producer Aaron, back from his Harry Potter hodge, gets to turn tables on us and ask us three questions about any three things. There is absolutely nothing off limits. Only one rule that Aaron has to answer the same questions as well. Now, Aaron, I have to tell you, we got rave reviews for Kim's questions. She asked some great questions. Yeah, she did a great job last week. Now, some of it could be just a woman's touch, making it more personal, so it was a nice change of pace, right? Or some of it could be people think that uh, she just does better at this than you. I, I, but, but you should know the latter. that you do have some stiff competition where this segment is now concerned. Well, that's uh, unfortunate because question number one is, what is your favorite thing about Harry Potter? Just kidding. Uh, real question number one. <laughs> if Hillary Clinton were elected president, what would everybody, and I'm talking media specifically, so conservative media, uh, let's see, leftist me- media, uh, people in the mainstream media at large, what would be the big stories swirling around right now of the inauguration week with uh, a potential Hillary Clinton presidency coming up. I hate to say this, but I think you could take almost every shoe that we are now watching drop and just simply put them on the opposite feet. I think many of the storylines would be the same. The wording may be somewhat different. I I think there would be be a concerted effort from the beginning, from many on our side, and, and I, I don't know that we wouldn't be a part of that to try and delegitimize her from the beginning because it's, I, think, I think it's more justifiable than it was with Obama eight years ago because even though he turned out, to Denny Green, to be who we thought they were, uh, we didn't really know that. I mean, he was a blank canvas for the most part at this point in January eight years ago. She is not. I mean, she's very definable. And, and, and when he ran in 2008... He played. He he did a he did a good job of playing the game of, I'm not against you. You know, he went to Rick Warren's church. He he did outreach to constituencies Democrats don't talk to nowadays. He was still talking to them eight years ago. Hillary Clinton let it be known all along. If you give me the scepter of government, I'm I will break you. I mean, she she went Ivan Drago guys in the debate. I will break you. I mean, she told us this. So that so there'd be there'd be much more of a justifiable impetus to try and undermine her from the beginning uh, than there probably was when we tried to do it with Obama eight years ago. But that's what I think would be happening largely on the right. Uh, I think um, the amount of work that would be done 
it, with uh, media outlets on our side digging into the, the you know the, the Clinton uh, Global Initiative and the Clinton Foundation would get double or triple down on that. And then I think that we'd all be called racist for even asking these questions. We'd all be called misogynist for even asking these questions. And uh, the liberal media, which has now suddenly decided that, you know, the fourth estate's job is to be skeptical, would, would take fawning uh, to a level that probably would have even surpassed where it was at this point eight years ago. That's what I think would be going on now, Todd. You would also see several hour-length shows called something like The March to Madam President. Agreed. You know, talking about the long list of, of female... The shattering, like the shattering of the yes. glass ceiling, yes. Who, who got us uh, to this point, but other, that's the only thing I could add to what Steve said. Yeah, that's, uh, that's. I mean, we're all going the same direction. The stories would basically be the same, except it would either, uh, I mean, it would just be, like you said, on the other foot. I think the Russia angle would still be there. I think that would be used as uh, another... Um, probably fig leaf in a lot of ways, even though it's uh, a legit story, depending on what facet of that story you're talking about. Well, but- we, what we, here's, here's the, can I, pardon me for just a second, sure. Aaron. The, the one thing I forgot to mention is what our side, how our side, we, I, we know how our side would react to Hillary. What we don't know is how our side would have reacted to Trump as a loser. Because Trump would not probably handle it the way others we were, have. We were trying to figure that out, right? And, I mean, like yeah. like when Romney lost, ten minutes later was wrecked and barely knew him. I've never. I mean, who is this Mitt Romney figure? I mean, people couldn't move on fast enough. Trump wouldn't permit that. I mean, he'd have to be in the media defending himself, blaming it on everybody else, and we would probably still be reprosecuting this election in this primary and finding people to blame for why Trump lost, other than Trump himself, because he would force that argument. And that might actually, guys, now that I think about it, you tell me what you think, that actually might might have hindered the effort to try and undermine Hillary from the beginning because Trump's presence within the media of, bl- of, take- of blaming everybody for his loss other than himself would still force many of us on our side to take up sides between, well, we told you all along he couldn't win or he could have won if you guys would have supported him, right? Maybe, actually, we wouldn't be undermining Hillary as much as we'd be out there cap- kneecapping each other. I don't know. Oh, I don't think there's any might about it. It would have been a total mess and Hillary Clinton would have been able to escape we talked about this before yeah. the election about how high her negatives would be how bad and and I said I you know I I think if she comes through this she's going to get quite a honeymoon period because it's we are whatever air quotes we are going to be so broken on the other side yeah and I, I think we mentioned this exact phrase many many times this is not going to stop after the election, and I think that was in the connotation of a lot of times this intra-conservative uh, conglomerate, whatever you want to call it, the kneecappings uh, will continue. That's pretty much, for the most part, stopped now. Uh, question two, when the radical left posits ridiculous things, is it better to ignore or engage? Depends on what the thing is So, for inst- and, 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 what, and what they're positing. So, for instance, when National Geographic publishes its Gender Revolution edition with a confused boy dressed as a girl on its front cover, is it better to try to engage with the left on that or just ignore it? I think on that front, I would, look, I would engage it, but I would engage it in a way that pans it, that, that doesn't accept it uh, on a legitimate level from the outset, that marginalizes it, that, that essentially demagogues it is what I would do. I... I, I I think there are some things that are so obscene they can't be reasoned with and they just have to be excoriated on site. And then I think there are some things that are uh, agate prop. They are simply put out there to provoke you and get you to look like a clown and, and meet the stereotypes that they're setting the trap for and you need to be discerning on which is which. I think there's almost 
never a time where the automatic answer is don't engage. But as Steve just said, how you engage, how much you engage, whether you engage with a righteous fist, with whether you engage just by laughing at them, that's what's crucial. I would say engage, but don't argue. Because when you argue, you're just playing their game. You're accepting. When you try to argue um, stuff like this, like what I just uh, mentioned about the uh, gender revolution thing, there's there's examples of that every day. When you try to argue, in some ways you're already accepting the premise of their argument. So, yeah, engage by panning it and then move on, kick the dust off your heels and move on. Question three, who would win this fight? The Flash versus Batman. It's a good question. Um, I'm going to go with Batman because of his overall resourcefulness. And I guess if you can make a movie where Batman, at least for five for ten minutes, goes toe-to-toe with Superman, then I guess you'd probably have to like his odds against a being that is not nearly as enhanced uh, or gifted as Superman is. So I, I would go with Batman. Well, I have a On question. Guile alone. I don't know nearly as much about the Flash universe. Is there any kryptonite equivalent to the Flash? Uh, because then the answer is easy and it's automatically the Flash. Well, you know, the elements, you know, his villains like Captain Cold or, he, or Heat Wave use natural elements uh, in order to slow him so it's down. it's like physics. Yeah, for example, yes. Hmm. Uh, and, and then there are other speedsters. Um, you know, like Black Flash or Reverse Flash or Dr. Zoom, uh, who use the speed force uh, in, in, for their own nefarious so means. So he could use some bat tech with, like, dry ice. But would a bullet take him down if it could if it could catch him? Yeah. He's still mortal. Yes. I would say depends on if Batman, Bruce Wayne, knew the alter ego of, of the Flash. We have to assume that he would because he's Batman. That's he's the greatest detective. Than Batman. That's why I said I'd give it to Batman on Guile alone. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. You can agree with him, or you can be wrong. It's a free country. Steve Dace. I'm for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz, where we go back, take a look at some of the headlines that we missed out on from earlier in the show when we just ran out of time, but they are worthy headlines nonetheless because they're trending on social media or at the water cooler at your job. So Aaron has those headlines, and then Todd and I will react with the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Story one on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. USA Today, in an epic piece of clickbait trollery, ran a column by Oliver Thomas titled, Whites Killed MLK, Now We Honor Him. He writes... Seems like every time Dr. King showed up somewhere, things got torn up or burned up. So we killed them. Not me, of course. I'm not a racist. But who thinks he is? So we tried to fix it. Made a birthday, made his birthday a national holiday. Put him on a pedestal where we can honor him. And he can't poke us in the eye. I have no idea what he's trying to communicate, but uh, he said it. See, this is an example of something you don't respond to. 
Uh, this is an this is an example of you ain't worth the salt in my tears. This is because here's the thing: even though there's a million responses to this, and you can knock it out of the park, if you feed the animals, they will return. They won't ever stop. It reminds me when we used to go to Tijuana when I was a kid, right? And the beggars would come up, man, and I'd just start emptying out my pockets. And everybody, we were always don't do that. Some of these people are poor. Some of them aren't. But if you give the, if you give them anything, they will just follow us everywhere we go, right? So this is this is you're you're exactly right. This is clickbait trollery. The goal of a piece like this is to get the appropriate response from people on our side. I would not feed the animals. One of the best ways to put a fire out is to deny it oxygen, Todd. What he's saying here, though, is that basically we've appropriated appropriated the legacy of Dr. King just to quiet him down, so to give us props, and then so we don't have to deal it anymore. But uh, before all this happens, you know, before we must recognize MLK. Wasn't there, there was a controversy? Wasn't it Arizona, the last state that wouldn't recognize it, uh, MLK Junior Day? Uh, on some, there was some controversy. When we were kids, Ar- I think Arizona was the last state to ratify yeah. it, and Public Enemy did a uh, really a cool rap song actually called "By the Time I Get to Arizona" so, about going there and essentially burning the state yeah. down for not acknowledging. So what's MLK? different? Then, where you had a gun pointed to your head, you had to accept it, where now you're being taunted for accepting it because you don't really believe it anyways. It's just another point. I say this all the time. You can't win with these people, so don't play their game. Exactly. An Episcopal church in California has decided to no longer use the proper names of government officials in prayer, citing President-elect Trump's name as a quote-unquote trauma trigger. It has previously used the names of officials such as Obama's, but now will now simply refer to them by title such as President. The rector of the church writes of the danger of Trump, quote, We are in a unique situation in my lifetime where we have a president-elect whose name is literally a trauma trigger to some people, particularly women and people who, because of the words and actions, he represents an active danger to health and safety. You lost me at Episcopalian, number one. <laughs> Number two, this is this is again so utterly benign, beyond asinine that I don't I don't. This is another area where unless you're just bored, there is nothing to be accomplished by addressing these people, and uh, instead be glad that they outed themselves and that they're likely not to breed uh, because of their viewpoint and uh, just let them extinction themselves because that this is. This is also proof, like I said on Friday, you weren't here, I proved God existed on Friday. This, this, this reinforces that proof. Because only a benevolent, long-suffering creator would permit a species this dumb to remain at the top of a food chain. Natural selection would have looked at these gene pools long ago and said, Nyet, and moved on to the salamander. So that's so that's that's one place where I come not to to bury these Episcopalians, Todd, but to praise them. Uh, we might want to strongly consider changing the name of this segment to "Utterly Beyond Asinine." I like that. Furthermore, that's not a church you're going to anymore because faith, hope, and love clearly have no power there because you won't that's let right. it. If just uttering the name of Donald Trump no longer allows grace to function in your life. Well said. It gets better, Steve. The divinity schools at Duke and Vanderbilt universities have instructed their professors to start using more inclusive language when referring to God because of the masculine pronouns, quote, have served as a cornerstone of the patriarchy. 
For example, this year's Divinity's course catalog at Vanderbilt tells professors to give consistent attention to the use of inclusive language, especially in relation to the divine, because the school commits continuously and explicitly to include gender as an analyzed category and to mitigate sexism. Next on Utterly Beyond Asinine, Steve, your take. Who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? Who is be, who is who's utterly asinine? The pagan uh, professors proposing this tripe, or those of us who send our children to study underneath them voluntarily without conscription of our own free will at at six hundred dollars a credit hour? Who's who's really be, who's utterly asinine here? Who really is utterly asinine? The people running the divinity schools at these particular universities are those of you who pay. And, and tell your kids, yes, you should go into six-figure debt in order to study under such morons. Who's really the fool? You're voluntarily sending your children here. So I'm sorry, Todd. I, I, I agree there's some, there are some people in this conversation that are utterly asinine. But who, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it the pagan agate propers? Or is it those, or are those who just knowingly said, I worked... And I toiled and I denied myself for the last 18 to 20 years for these children so that I could then send them here to continue and conclude their education. I, I think maybe we need to redirect who's the utterly beyond asinine here. Yeah, I'll just start and end with this. Divinity. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Well, unless they're looking in the mirror, then it means exactly what they think it means. Last story, U.S. civics education, if it exists at all, is being transformed into a political machine used to push left-wing causes, undermine American government, and incite civil unrest. That's according to a 525-page report from the National Association of Scholars. The new civics uses attractive, bipartisan-sounding words like civics and service learning to trick Americans and their representatives into allowing progressive political machinery to hijack public funds and young minds. The name of that report is called Making Citizens, How American Universities Teach Civics. Steve, this a better title would be Tell Me Something We Didn't Already Know. But this reminded me of a column you wrote a while back, and this was before the election, in memory served, but you were recommending several steps. And one of them was a, a, hol a holistic scientific diagnostic of the state of the nation. Do you recall that? And this mm -hmm. is along those lines. I mean, we know this. This is not a secret. But a 525-page report, I mean, that's an indictment. And that, sure it is. It goes beyond rhetoric. Now, the other side will take it as branding. But this, this, this <laughs> say thanks for the branding. But this goes back to what we were talking about last hour with Bob Vanderplatz. This is why Trump's going to determine Obama's legacy. Because this is always what they intended to do. The question becomes, when you elect somebody like Donald Trump, is he serious about undoing and uprooting this stuff? And, that's the que and that is the question we don't have an answer to yet, and we won't until he gets in there. You're listening to Steve Dace. Ever exceeding your low expectations, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. 
Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Well, I think it was on Friday that today's show commemorated its 60th anniversary on television. Not to be outdone, our friends at the Media Research Center have compiled a list of clips, and we have them, of the top 10 worst examples of obnoxious liberal bias on the Today Show over the course of the last 60 years. We're going to go through, count these down in order that MRC has them ranked and react. Beginning with October 11th, 1992. This is NBC's Today Show celebrating Columbus Day. And he sailed just as Jews and Muslims were being expelled from Spain. The persecution of those peoples and the riches robbed from them paying for his small armada of ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, to set sail for new plunder. For Native Americans, the people who hardly felt discovered, Columbus's landing commenced a holocaust. There's really no other word for the death delivered by settlers as they scattered, enslaved, and obliterated Indian nations on their own sacred lands. That is, I've used this term a couple times already this hour, that is classic progressive agate prop right there. That's, exa- that's, that's classic. A couple things. Number one, the idea that Jews and Muslims were expelled from Spain as if they were on the same team here is historical inaccuracy They went out best. holding hands, Steve, you yes. know that? historical inaccuracy at best, a blatant lie at worst. Uh, the Muslims were never invited into Spain. They conquered it, okay? Uh, and they were treating the Christians in Spain the way they treated the Jews at the Battle of the Trench. Now, I am not saying that during this time period, Christians were on their best behavior where the Jews were concerned. What I am saying, though, is conflating both of these instances as moral equivalencies, Todd, is beyond the historical pale. That is not true. The Moors were rejected. They were kicked out of territory that did not belong to them, which they had conquered. Secondly, if the Indians got such a raw deal from Western imperialism, then how come you folks at the Today Show that aired this segment, why won't you join the reservation in solidarity? Why don't you give up all the trappings of Western civilization? Why don't you give up your technology and your freedom? Why don't you give up everything that this oppressive, uh, heteronormative hierarchy brought here to these shores at the expense of those precious Native Americans in order to show just how much you truly disdain your legacy. And I've just got to give points to the soundtrack there. It was like something out of High Noon. I mean, was the guy yes. reading it wearing a white hat? And they did they, like, in crayon, put a black hat on Columbus or something? All right, here's the Today Show, August 1st, 2001. This is number nine, Viva la Socialism. Break out the bad, bring on the drinks. The French are calling it a miracle. A government-mandated 35-hour work week is changing the French way of life. Sixty percent of those on the job say their lives have improved. These American women, all working in France, have time for lunch. I'll join that, even though you're here, and a light. So great, that young mother being able to come home at three every day and spend the time with her child. Isn't that nice? The French, they've got it right, don't they? Says a woman who left her kids at 3 a.m. to go to work all day long for a major news studio. Boy, they've got it right. 
No one's making Katie Couric work these hours. Nobody is. And you mean to tell me that French women had no time for lunch until there was a mandated 35-hour work week? Come on, It's a miracle man. they survived that long, Steve. Regarding all those things they're celebrating, ask Greece how that's going right now. Indeed. Well, th- th- that, there's a reason why this is dated August 1st, 2001, and there wasn't any follow-up reporting to see what became of their 35-hour work week. But I, I just... These are the, the same people congratulating the French are, for doing this because, as Katie Couric says, now that they get to spend time with their kids are the same people hammering Kellyanne Conway for this, currently for this exact same dynamic, for, for turning down opportunities because she wanted to have more time with her kids, and then for accepting opportunities that didn't require as much time from her schedule because that would take away from her kids. You can't have it both ways, except they can, because they are rarely called on this stuff. And the happy music, like it's Mardi Gras. This is like the minimum wage, though. You 35-hour work week, you lessen productivity. Did they follow up on what that might do to the the jobs that you won't even be able to leave for lunch Those for? The minor details, Todd. Yeah, yeah, I think we both know the answer to that question. We'll continue the countdown here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. The new benchmark in broadcast mediocrity, Steve Dace. All right, let's continue. Top 10 most obnoxious examples of liberal media bias on the Today Show as it celebrates its 60th anniversary as. Ranked by our friends over at the Media Research Center. This is number eight from February 28th, 1988. High fives for Fidel Castro. And the level of public services was remarkable. Free education, medicine, and heavily subsidized housing. There is in Cuba government intrusion into everyone's life from the moment he is born until the day he dies. The reasoning is that the government wants to better the lives of its citizens and keep them from exploiting or hurting one another. (laughs) On a sunny day in a park in the old city of Havana, it is difficult to see anything that is sinister. (laughs) You just just have to let that play for itself, don't you? There's nothing sinister about the fact that your people's default is that they want to hurt each other. That's what you just said. How about the fact there's nothing sinister about the fact that government wants and government intrudes intrudes into everyone's life? Yes, because he everyone in government sen- is angels. Yes, he They're started the humans. sentence off saying that government's intrusion into everyone's life from the moment he's born to the moment he dies and ends it with. But there's difficult to see anything sinister about that. <laughs> I just appreciate the uh, history much the honesty there. Number seven, blaming Bill's victims. This is from May tenth, nineteen ninety four. We've got an awful lot to talk about this week, including the uh, sexual harassment suit against the president. Of course, in that one, it's tough to figure out who's really being harassed. Little victim shaming there from mm-hmm. Bryant Gumbel. Yeah, he's such a peach. I can't believe he said that. I'm sure it was just a lapse of judgment. In, indeed. Number six. This is from April 2nd, 1992. Hard-working Hillary versus sexist America. Do you think the American people are ready for a first lady who is that involved at a policy-making level? in the White House. Some people say some not so flattering things about you. They say you're the power behind the throne, overly ambitious, 
Yeah. What's your reaction to comments such as those? Do you think those kinds of reactions, Ms. Clinton, are the, the result of good, good old-fashioned sexism? Because there's no reason at all that you could possibly be concerned that someone that is not directly accountable to you as the voters might be making decisions in the White House other than good old-fashioned sexism, Todd. Of course not. There is no other reasoning at all. None. There is none. I just think it's funny that how leading the questions are as if Hillary Clinton didn't want to go there anyway. Yeah, we, what, I, I, what is this charade? Well, apparently Media Research Center had to ran out of tape because they had to stop it before her next question, which is, Mrs. Clinton, can you confirm that you are really as great as we keep telling the audience here on the Today Show you are? Uh, number five. This is from October 19th, 2006, urging, quote, rock star Obama to run. Are you, you know, you are the, the equivalent of a rock star in politics. Many people afterwards, they weren't sure how to pronounce your name, but they were moved by you. People were crying. You tapped into something. You touched people. What did you tap into that, that was missing? If your party says to you, we need you, and, and, and there's already a drumbeat out there, Will you respond? I don't know. If you want to know what Obama tapped into with that speech, go down the hall there at 30 Rock to Chris Matthews' office, and he'll tell you all about that, that thrill going up his leg. And there may never be a greater example of liberal bias, because if you can make an analogy to Donald Trump, is, it more, is there anything more apropos than rock star? I mean, just women all over the place, you know, all kinds of stories we just heard now about maybe there was some peeing, maybe there wasn't. I mean, this guy is the absolute rock star, and I don't think we've ever coined him that, Steve. Yeah, I, you're the rock star, and we're the groupies. You've got I it all love right, Obama's yeah. reaction, the way he's kind of uncomfortably laughing, like, I mean, they told me you guys were to set me up, but I mean, this is really even over the top, even for me. I mean, I know I'm on my second autobiography, and I'm not 50! But even by my standards, guys, this is this is a little fawning. You know what I'm saying? I mean, let's you know, salvage some shred of dignity here. Uh, number four, uh, this is Bryant Gumbel on the Today Show, May 9th, 1990, talking about how Reagan fiddled as America burned. From NBC News, this is Today with Bryant Gumbel and Deborah Norville. And good morning. Welcome to Today. It's a Wednesday morning, a day when the when the budget picture, frankly, seems gloomier than ever. Now it seems the time has come to pay the fiddler for our costly dance of the Reagan years. <laughs> that, I mean, that's, that's not even an attempt at professionalism. I mean, he goes on to say, by the way, the bottom line is more tax money is going to be needed. Number three, this is the Today Show from May 16th, 2002, blaming Bush for 9-11. Good morning. What did he know and when did he know it? The Bush administration admits the president was warned in an intelligence briefing last summer of the possibility that Osama bin Laden's terrorist network might hijack American planes, raising more questions about whether the attacks on America could have been prevented today, Thursday, May the 16th, 2002. Okay, whether on Benghazi or email, was did the media ever once no, say always, the same a, thing? There's always when, a presumption What did of she know and when did she know it? No, Does no, that no, ever instead, instead, well, they told us it was that video and it's just dutifully reported as such based on what they tell you. That's exactly right. Using the language, what did he know and when did he know? Of course, that language comes from Watergate. Uh, the audience for the Today Show would skew towards a demographic that would recognize that language. So that is, I mean, your generation's now watching, Aaron, right? No. So. That is an attempt to begin to infuse that, that sort of mindset into the audience. Number two, April 25th, 1995, 
blaming it all on conservatives. The bombing in Oklahoma City has focused renewed attention on the rhetoric that's been coming from the right and those who cater to angry white men. While no one's suggesting that right-wing radio jocks approve of violence, even though you just the did, yeah, which their no. approach fosters violence is being questioned just by did. many observers, including the President of the United States, right-wing talk show hosts like Rush Limbaugh, Bob Grant, Oliver North, G. Gordon Liddy, Michael Reagan, and others take to the air every day with basically the same format. Detail a problem, blame the government or a group, and invite invective from like-minded people. Never do most of the radio hosts encourage outright violence, but the extent to which their attitudes may embolden or encourage some extremists has clearly become an issue. Now, this is the same Brian Gumbel who just a few minutes ago opened up by blaming, uh, blaming Ronald Reagan for all of the budget problems to come two years later, uh, and that it's all his fault that the country is broke, suddenly is concerned about heated rhetoric, partisan rhetoric, inf- unfairly inflaming the passions, Todd, of the other side. And Brian Gumbel wouldn't know anything about being an angry man talking to like-minded people, would he? I got nothing. We've got the number one example of obnoxious liberal media bias on the Today Show covering its 60th anniversary when we come back. Listening to Steve Dace. We don't play for a team, we fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. So, this is normally when we would ask the team here on the Steve Dace Day show at the end of the night what we learned here this evening, but I know what they're going to learn, or what they have learned. Because they're about to learn it right now. Now, is this the crescendo that's coming, or is this like David Letterman, where number two is really number one? And well, this- it's tough to top number two. I, I will mm-hmm. admit, I, this is not intended to be Letterman-esque, but it may turn out to be because number two is so insipidly biased and obnoxious. It is so over-the-top sanctimonious that you almost don't want to know if there's a worse example than that. But I'll leave it to you to find out for yourself what you guys think. Media Research Center ranks this the number one example of obnoxious literal media bias, liberal media bias on the Today Show as it celebrates its 60th anniversary from September 27th, 1999. Good morning. The Gipper was an airhead. That's one of the conclusions of a new biography of Ronald Reagan that's drawing a tremendous amount of interest and fire today, Monday, September the 27th, 1999. That's number one, Todd. These people are more honest than I thought they were, actually, listening to all of those. You know, that would never happen in reverse. No. Ever. Never. The Gipper was an airhead. And ni- this is 1999. Yes. Now, even more, is this, so this is, he's already, he's already, showing he's signs already, of dementia. he's already issued his retirement from public life yes. because of Alzheimer's, yes. That's really classy. So he's not in a position to even defend himself. You, you never guessed somebody who said something like that would go on to, uh, lie about a second amendment video would you no, no you would not and i and i think that uh, you know when you listen to these now you do see you see why there is a group of people out there that and i don't mean the cult but i mean another group of people out there that just said 
I have spent most of my life as a voter or an activist trying to get the Republicans that represent me to push back on this stuff on any level at all. And now you're telling me that we finally have a guy who pushes back on it, and now you're telling me you want me to tone him down from pushing back on it? When most of my life I could give, never get him to push back on it at all. So I'm inclined to err on the side of bull in a china shop in this case. And you can understand when you listen to this stuff in compilation, in its, in, 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 when, when you mainline, we just mainlined this stuff. We mainlined decades of this in the last 15 minutes. When you ingest a concentrated dose of this, you can understand why the cult aside, there, is a, there are people out there that love their country that just simply said, I don't even care about the other stuff. As terrible and as bad as it is, somebody needed to be a human, human battering ram to smash these people. And, and, and the fact that, that Trump got away with everything he got away with, they themselves are to blame. And it's why I said while you were gone, Aaron, the, the, the one saving grace of a Trump presidency is that it will humiliate all those who are truly and really responsible for it. John 3.17. Listening to Steve Dace.